And let's go straight to the St. Michael singers now for Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God.
The glorious things of thee are spoken, are sung by the St. Michael singers. Coming up on Heart and Soul this morning, we hear more from the late Les Brown. That comes from his book, It Just So Happened. Malcolm Guite, and we hear his thoughts on the saying of Jesus, I am the Good Shepherd. Willie Wright tells us a bit about the hymn writer John Newton. That was one of his hymns which you've just heard, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Towards the end of the programme we'll be hearing from Adrian Plass as he reads another chapter from his book, The Unlocking. And we've got the notice board and we've got the music. Here's an updating of John Newton's Amazing Grace. Uh, We'll have the more traditional version later on in the programme. But here we have the East Valley Chorale and My Chains Are Gone, Amazing Grace.
And that was the East Valley Chorale of Phoenix, Arizona with My Chains Are Gone, Amazing Grace. But let's see what David has for us next. Les Brown was a pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship in East Africa. Les has written about his experiences in a book called It Just So Happened. Today we hear about some of the difficulties that Les faced when he returned to this country. Let's close the hangar doors for a while. But still, just so happens, happens. The years passed and we were back in UK, the children now in secondary education. It was 1980 and I found myself among Britain's three million unemployed. Over a three-year period, I picked up several short-term labouring jobs, though managed to get a break from that with some voluntary work. I ferried a DC-3 from South England to Florida, USA, routing via Ireland, Iceland and Canada. This was followed by six months' voluntary work, flying between West Palm Beach in Florida and Haiti in support of Christian missions. Those were three hard years, when the money was very tight. But I believe even such times are the Lord's discipline, moulding and shaping us into the people he wants us to be. I didn't enjoy it. Getting back to my theme, I was offered an interview for a flying job down in Cambridge, and so planned my travel arrangements. Elaine would drive me to Aberdeen Railway Station, 17 miles, in a very old Ford Cortina, a scrap heap on four wheels. I told her that on her return she should park it in the parking area a little distance from her house and leave it. It was dead. To get it running these days we had to push-start it and it was becoming embarrassing having neighbours come out and give us a hand. So we got to the station and made sure that the engine was kept running while I jumped out to get my train. Elaine did what we planned and left the car in the car park. We didn't bother to lock it, for if anyone wished to steal it, they would be doing us a favour. Two days later I phoned Elaine from a coin box at Cambridge Station to say that I would be home late that evening. That's all I managed to say before my money ran out. Never mind, I got the message across. I knew that I would be too late in Aberdeen to catch the last bus home, but I was prepared to thumb a lift for the 17 miles, though it could be a little difficult at that time of night. (coughs) Meantime, Elaine put the phone down and the same thoughts were running through her mind. No transport. She's quite a determined person, so decided that while it was still light, early afternoon in the winter, She would go out and try to start the car. She turned the key in the engine, utter silence. Back to the house she went, feeling very disappointed. She's a lady of prayer, and the car became the focal point of her prayers that afternoon. Is God interested in our little problems, or only in big ones? I've no doubt that he is interested in our thoughts, words and actions at every moment, though perhaps my faith is not as strong as Elaine's. You know what's coming next. Yes, she went out again an hour or two later in the afternoon when it was starting to get dark, climbed into the driving seat, put the key in the ignition and gave it a quick turn. The engine roared into life and she sat back completely stunned. What had happened? In the dusk she looked around and saw a dirty square thing by the passenger seat. In closer inspection, it was a very old battery. What was under the bonnet then? Elaine got out, opened it up, and there was a brand new shiny battery. How on earth had that got there? No one had seen her going out to and from the car, as our neighbours were out at work. Elaine went back into the house, still stunned, and made herself a big mug of tea. This definitely wasn't the prayer answer she'd expected. Shortly after the children came in from school, one of them had a note in his hand, which he'd found on the doormat. Elaine had missed it. The anonymous message read, 
just to say that a new battery has been fitted to your car. Please don't try and trace the person who fitted it. It just so happened that this friend who knew about our dead battery had the afternoon off work, so bought a new one and drove to where our car was parked. He fitted the new battery all in the space of time between Elaine's first attempt at starting the car and her second try. Quite by accident, we discovered a couple of years later who this friend was. He lived five miles from us and had no knowledge of my being away or of our special need for that evening. I was a bit shocked, too, to see Elaine welcoming, welcoming face with a car late that night at the station. How did you get it to work? I queried. And the story came out as we happily drove home. It just so happened. Well, there's Brown. And quite apart from the main thrust of what he was saying, that was quite an adventure flying a Dakota to Florida via Ireland, Iceland, Canada, and then heading south through the United States. But let's have more music. And here are the St. Michael singers again, this time with I Am Trusting Thee, Lord Jesus. have some more music and it's Elvis this time and it is his hand in mine
can feel his hand in mine, and that's enough for me. I will never walk alone. He holds my hand. He holds my hand. He will guide each step. Psalm 73 verse 23 says, You are always with me, you hold me by my right hand. And that's where the theme for that song came from. That was Elvis with his hand in mine. Now, over to you, David. Malcolm Geith spoke at the Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh last year. On the last day of the conference, he talked about the I Am sayings of Jesus. Today we hear Malcolm contrasting the weakness of human shepherds with Christ's perfect sacrifice of himself and the saying, I am the good shepherd. That thing about the gate comes in John 10:7, And then just three verses later, Jesus says in John um, 10, 11, of course, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you remember there's that contrast between the good shepherd and the hireling. And I had imagined, when I was sat down to write these poems, I had imagined that I was going to write a really nice poem about shepherds and sheep, and it was all going to be like one of those lovely sort of pastoral illustrations of the 23rd Psalm. You know, that was where I was intending to go with this poem. But it's not what happened at all. And the more I reflected on the gospel and thought about the good shepherd... I just suddenly, it broke into me actually with tears. There'd been so much, so relentlessly, about the predatory behaviour of priests and pastors and ministers, particularly with the vulnerable. I want to think of these children as little lambs. I just could not bear it. And there'd been some particularly, you know, telling things close to home as well as in other churches. And somehow that passage released in me a kind of cry of pain really and I remember I think when the Archbishop of Canterbury talked about it he was really glad he used the, he used the word shame which was really important word to use I think so I'm going to warning you so I sonnets the 14 tend to divide quite often into an, an 8 and a 6 it's called an octet and a sestet and I began to find more and more in these you'll see it's happened quite a lot in these ones that I'll say something and I'll let myself really go with something in the eight and wait and then turn around on the six. And so the, the eight, the opening, was just a cry of pain about how terrible 
the false shepherds and the bad pastoring have been. You know, and then this turning in desperate need to Jesus as the good shepherd. You know, sometimes in despair, think that's the only good shepherd. You know, just the desperation of that. And so that's what came out in this poem. So I just wanted to tell you that in advance. Sort of, um, but I found myself returning to it and using it as a prayer each time another bits of this kind of awful news comes out. And it doesn't... You know, these things, I know in some cases, and particularly in the Catholic Church in Ireland, you know, the, the nature of the revelations has just shaken people's faith altogether. And I understand why people feel like that. Though, in a sense, maybe it's how your faith has been shed. I mean, it hasn't shaken my faith in the sense that my faith has always been in the goodness of God and, and in Christ and in that fountain so pellucid it never can be muddied. My faith was never in, you know, I never, just by looking in my own eye, I never thought, you know, I never sort of assumed that because somebody was, you know, converted or called or was a pastor in the church that they would not be subject to sin and that they wouldn't, you know. So, I mean, you can be horrified and you can definitely want to change things and all of that, but in a sense, I think that thing in the psalm, put not your trust in princes nor in any child of man, it was sort of there. But still, you kind of read these things and it's a drip, 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 and suddenly writing this poem, it just came out as a sheer kind of cry of pain, really, and that's where... This poem has come from, and I remember thinking, oh, golly, you know, I'm trying to write... But I felt I'm glad, in a way, that where this comes is right in the middle of the I am sayings. That we're going to go back, you know, to I am the resurrection and I am the life. But it needed somehow, I felt this needed explicitly saying in the poetry collection that it is. So let's, let's hear the passage. I am the good shepherd... The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. When so much shepherding has gone so wrong, so many pastors hopelessly astray, the weak so often preyed on by the strong, so many bruised and broken on the way, the very name of shepherd seems besmeared. The fold and flock themselves are torn in half. The lambs we left to face all we have feared are caught between the wasters and the wolf. Good shepherd, now your flock has need of you. One finds the fold and 99 are lost. Out in the darkness and the icy dew. And no one knows how long this night will last. Restore us. Call us back to you by name. And by your life laid down, redeem our shame. guide with a different take on I Am the Good Shepherd. Just a reminder though that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the digital access channel or heartlandfm.scot. It'll be Bridge FM if you are in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. Welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. We're still working from home with Sam Ross putting all the pieces together for us. Quick reminder too of our sister programme Sounds Inspirational. Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock, repeated on Thursday evening at 10. 
and it'll be Lince Honeyman inviting us aboard his gospel blues train. But let's get back to the theme of the Good Shepherd. Here's Jim Reeves and Gentle Shepherd. Jim Reeves, and the song was Gentle Shepherd. Now, David will tell us what's coming up next. Willie Wright was minister of Pitlochry Baptist Church for many years until his retirement. While here in Pitlochry, Willie produced a series of talks about hymns and hymn writers. Today, we hear about John Newton, ex-slave trader and writer of Amazing Grace. John Newton was an only child. He was born in London in 1725. His father was a shipmaster, a rather severe man, his mother a very gentle woman. Uh, His mother always prayed for her little boy, and her prayer was that one day John would grow up and go to St Andrews University and become a minister of the gospel. Why did she want that for him? Well, her own minister in London had gone to St Andrews and she had a great regard for him and she thought it would be wonderful if her little boy grew up one day to follow that same path. John's mother died when he was only seven years of age. It was a difficult time for him. He only had two years schooling and at not a very good school at that. He left school when he was 11 years of age and he went to sea. And for the next few years, uh, he sailed the seven seas. He led a very rough life. He got into bad company. He was great at making up songs, the kind of songs that we couldn't really uh, put out on Heartland Radio. But the sailors loved them and they said, can you give us more of these songs? And they sung it uh, from the depth of their heart. John Newton's life was going from bad to worse. 
And it was one night in the, on the 10th of March, 1748, when he was 23 years of age. During a storm at sea, he cried to God for help. It was a kind of distress call. And God saved him, as he put it. The 10th of March was always a date that he commemorated every single year, the day that his life changed. John Newton had been involved in the slave trade. John Newton had been a slave himself for some time. For two years after that event on the 10th of March 1748, he continued as a sailor, and then he got a shore job in Liverpool as a tide surveyor. He married the girl who he had known for a while, and they settled down. And then John Newton, who only had two years schooling, started to read in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, and study the Bible, and he did become a minister. He didn't go to St Andrews University, but he did become a minister of the gospel in Olney, in Buckinghamshire, where he served for 16 years. His next-door neighbour was a poet by the name of William Cowper, and between them they wrote a number of hymns which they shared with their congregation. And in 1779 they produced a little book called Olney Hymns. And uh, some of the hymns that we still sing today by Cowper and Newton appeared in that book. Later on, he moved on to uh, be minister in St Mary Woolnoth in London, and he was there for 28 years. And he exercised a great influence on many people. Uh, one member of Parliament who came to see him was a man called William. Uh, he felt convinced that God was wanting him to become a minister of the gospel. And John Newton said, No, William, I think you should stay on as a member of Parliament and do the good work that you're doing there. William's second name was Wilberforce, and he was working on this uh, bill to uh, abolish slavery. And John Newton encouraged him to continue to do that. John Newton's life was a life that was changed dramatically, and he could never get over the amazing grace of God that had reached down to him and lifted him up. Over his mantelpiece in his study at Olney, he had a picture and uh, a text from Scripture. You will remember that you were a slave and the Lord your God redeemed you. John Newton could never get over the amazing grace of God. He wrote about it. And probably in one of the most well-known songs, still today, people still sing about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that was Willie Wright. Here now is the version of Amazing Grace, which had a lot to do with making it popular. Though here in Scotland, the version by the Royal Scottish Dagoon Guards, two years or so later than this one, I think that one had quite a lot to do with it as well. But this is Judy Collins and Amazing Grace.
Judy Collins with Amazing Grace. Doesn't have all the verses that are normally in the home books there, but that's what it was, Julie Collins and Amazing Grace. But let's get back to David for our next piece. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian talks about the fear of physical violence. Physical fear. The same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. We don't talk much about fear of physical violence in the church, do we? It's been a shadow in my life for as long as I can remember. Not that I have any problem with organised team violence. I enjoyed playing rugby when I was younger as much as anything else I've ever done. What I'm talking about is a morbid preoccupation with the possibility of sudden, cataclysmically intrusive violence that crudely cancels out qualities of mind, spirit and emotion like a size 12 boot squashing a snail. I do not want my shell scrunched into my vulnerability. My particular personal shadow caused me great distress when I was a young Christian in the 60s. Everyone was reading about Pastor Richard Vermbrandt's experience of being tortured for 14 years in the underground prisons of communist Romania. 14 years! I seriously doubted that I would last four minutes, especially if they did anything to my teeth. Did you see Marathon Man? I just knew that I would emerge from that torture chamber a violently anti-Christian, deeply committed, proselytising member of the Romanian Communist Party. I found it sufficiently fearful just walking through the mod and rocker-infested streets of my hometown. All I could hope and pray was that the Christian population of Tunbridge Wells would never be faced with physical persecution. It seemed unlikely on the face of it. The fear continued throughout the years when I worked with teenagers in care, some of whom displayed extremely violent behaviour. It continued when I went to South Africa in response to a request to cheer people up in the summer of 1993. On a few occasions I lay awake for most of the night, my mind constantly rerunning scenes of violence and horror that I'd been told of or had seen on television news reports. God did not take the fear away. I loved the people I met in that sad, beautiful, tumultuous land, but I almost kissed the tarmac when my return flight landed at Heathrow. The fear continues. I don't know if God will ever perform divine surgery on me. I wish he would lift my weakness out by the roots. Perhaps, though, it will always be part of the cluster of thorns in my flesh. Did Paul really only have one thorn? And if he doesn't remove it, I hope that I continue to learn, as Gideon did with painful slowness, that God really can be trusted, however weak I am, and that obedience and dependence of the right sort are the things that will make me strong in the end. Oh, and if you disagree with what I've said, don't hit me. Pray with me. I've done it again, Lord. I've ended my comments with a flippancy. That's because I don't know how to write a scream. Anyone who shares this particular fear will understand about that scream. Should I pray to be released from this 40-year-old burden, Lord? I don't know if I can. The haversack has become a hump. I'm afraid that a lot of me will go with it if you removed it. I think we're going to have to take it with us. But hold on while I shut my eyes and grip my teeth. You're the boss. Amen. Adrian Plass, and we'll have more from his book, The Unlocking, next week. And that's our programme once again. Thank you for listening. Our thanks, too, to Adrian Plass there, Willie Wright, Malcolm Guide, and the late Les Brown for their contributions. I'm not forgetting Sam Ross, who put the 22 separate pieces together to make up the edition that you have just heard. 
Eddie Rose is on after the news at 9 and Colin Phillips at 11. Dave Barry is in with the service at 1. Maybe not literally in, but the service at 1 will be there. Anne-Marie is at 2, Mike Marwick at 5, Ian Moyes at 7 and Chris Stanton at 9. That's all today here on Heartland FM. But for now, David Wilkie and I, I'm Howard Simpson, as usual, we'll wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing. We leave you with Geraldine Latty and The Lord is Gracious and Compassionate. Thank you.